0: Shifting from right to left, play action on that side. Rolling ride looking, fires to the end zone, kind of main, oh, That's a 15
1: Welcome to the Bowl Season Stories Podcast, season three, episode 12. I'm Nick Carparelli, the Executive Director of Bowl Season. And today we are joined by ESPN radio host Chris Carlin and former USC Trojan Matt Castle. If you missed any of our previous episodes, you can catch them on Spotify. Apple Music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the Bowl Season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl season. Today's show is brought to you by Sport Radar, reimagining immersive experiences for sports fans and betters. Our first guest is the co-host of ESPN Radio's midday show an Emmy award-winning staple in the New York sports scene. And on Saturdays, he's the voice of Rutgers football. Please welcome to the show, Chris Carlin. Chris, thanks for joining us.
2: Nick, great to be with you. How you doing?
1: Doing great. And I, and I should have mentioned in the intro, the only person I know whose wedding was held in a pizza restaurant. And for those <laughs> of who know me, that puts Chris at godlike status to have done that.
2: it really it really should put more of my wife at godlike status because it was her idea It was john's pizzeria in new york city uh, on 44th street but that was a good night nick biggest crime out of that is i did not get one slice there the entire night (laughs) it was so disappointing
1: (laughs) wow wow well i've been there since and uh it's it's still very good i'm sure you have as
2: well oh absolutely we go back every couple of anniversaries it's a blast and it's oh unbelievable pizza
1: well, you've been the voice of Rutgers football since 2004, which is exactly how long I've known you. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some of your most memorable and meaningful moments in the booth calling Scarlet Knight games?
2: You know, I, I think for me, um, just being a, a person from New Jersey, uh, really being able to be a part of the state in that regard, uh, a source of pride, is, as we've seen Greg Schiano build it up you know, the first time and continuing to build it up now in his his second stint has been amazing. I mean, if I'm thinking about individual moments, I'm thinking about, you know, 2005 when they made their first bowl game. I know you talked to Greg recently about that. And just just the moment of uh, beating Cincinnati in the final game and you uh, were at seven wins and you knew you were definitively going to a bowl game and what that really meant to the program at the time. And the next year, taking a next step and in 2006, having an incredibly memorable win against Louisville and, um, you know, getting up to as high as number six in the country. These are the kinds of things uh, that I think about right away. And I, I also just think about the relationships with, you know, people like you, Nick, and people I've met all along the way. It's been absolutely amazing to get a chance to, to really uh, get to know so many people in college athletics.
1: And it's a little known fact that I, I believe you had told me this, that I was your first live on-air interview. I think it was during a, well, if you started, it must've been during a Rutgers spring game back in 2004, probably, I'm guessing.
0: I think it was,
1: survived I, that.
2: I think it may have been. So I did sideline for three years before I took over play-by-play. And I think it was in 2002, and Rutgers was playing at Pitt. And uh, I I remember specifically because uh, there was a quarterback that everybody was talking about uh, at Pitt who would later end up transferring, named Joe Flacco, uh, who, was turning, who turned out to be pretty good. But we were talking, uh, you were working for the Big East at the time uh, as the uh, associate commissioner for football, and, and just uh, I remember – you being a great guest for somebody that was interviewing guests kind of for the first time, uh, live on air at halftime, that was a tremendous spot. We had fun with that.
1: Yeah, we did for sure. We, we've, uh, we, I don't know if I was very good at uh, being interviewed at the time. I don't know if I'm good now, but, uh, but we're, <laughs> we, we've certainly both uh, improved since then. I'm sure uh, <laughs> That's <fair. laughs> you, you mentioned the Scarlet Knights are, are, are again, bullbound. bound. Mm-hmm. Um, how are you feeling about getting to call another bowl game? Now, you've, you've called nine or 10 for them over the years. It's been a while. Gator Bowl experience a couple of years ago was a little unique. Uh, you've called a lot of other bowl games for ESPN Radio. Are, are there any bowl games that really stand out to you? Any, any that you're hoping to call because of past experience?
2: I, I mean, certainly uh, some of the experiences we've had uh, through Rutgers, the one that stands out immediately – for there uh, was the bowl game in, in Arizona. At the time, it was the Insight Bowl, I believe it was the Guaranteed Rate Bowl the last couple of years that was at Chase Field. And, you know, that first one, it, it's always going to be difficult to kind of top that first bowl experience because it's not just the game, Nick, right? It It is everything leading up to the game, all the events for these kids. And, and the thing to remember about that is, You know, these are kids that I got to know over a three and four year period. That was an entire development time for Rutgers. And and these were guys who were getting to really enjoy kind of the fruits of their labor. And I'll never forget, never forget uh, myself uh, and Tim Pernetti uh, going and hosting a rally the day before in a park uh, out in Phoenix, and it just being absolutely filled with Rutgers fans who were so excited to make that trip west. And then it translated the next day, uh, Rutgers was playing Arizona State in that game. And uh, close game, 45-40. Again, I know you and and Greg talked a little bit about it, the James Gandolfini effect uh, last week. But also just the fact, Nick, that I couldn't get over at times how loud it was with Rutgers fans, how many Rutgers fans were outside the stadium, Um, being around guys like Ray Lucas and Marco Battaglia, who had been part of it in the 90s. You know, Marco is an All-American. Ray was a tremendous quarterback uh, at Rutgers, but they never got to experience it. You know, they had been seven and four uh, in 1992, but were not selected for a game. And just seeing the smiles on their faces, seeing what it all really meant um that to me is always going to stick out as a big big just wonderful memory despite falling short in the game just everything that that meant to the program
1: yeah thank you for that story chris you know that's that's the kind of story that we hear over and over on this podcast and when i talk to other people about how meaningful these games are i I think fans turn on the tv and they watch another football game for three hours and they don't understand what it took for these teams to get there. The experiences that they're, they've had for the three or four days uh, in that city leading up to the game and what it means to, to those current players. But like you said, the players who paved the way, you know, the fan base, not every program's the same, not every bowl game's the same, but they, it, it doesn't have to factor into the national championship equation all the time for a bowl game to be meaningful for these programs.
2: Oh no! It's it, it's an incredible reward for these players. And and a couple of weeks ago, when Rutgers won at Indiana, you're seeing some of these players that have gone through similarly what I was talking about with the guys who were there three and four years the first time around. Seeing a a guy like Johnny Langen, who's a, a tight end at Rutgers, uh, you know, a guy that uh, has really been through the wars and been through some tough times at Rutgers getting a chance to uh, really realize he was going to go to a bowl game this year uh, with that sixth win and smile on his face. More than anything, I I just think, I I think this, in this respect, this year is going to be just as special as it was back then, because um, when you go through some tougher times, you get a chance to reward those guys, but you also get a chance to kind of set a precedent of what, the expectations are, and here's what the spoils look like uh, at the end uh, through all your hard work. So I, I think more than anything, um, just seeing these kids, their parents, I know it sounds all Pollyanna and cliche, but man, uh, these are really personal stories for these families and seeing what they go through and all the sacrifice for it and, and seeing their kids and seeing those guys get to really enjoy the experiences uh, of each individual bowl game is, you know, it's just fantastic to see.
1: A conference realignment is obviously a hot topic in college athletics. And next year we'll see some te- some new teams entering the big 10. What is your opinion on conference realignment in general? And are you personally looking forward to taking trips to USC, UCLA, <laughs> Oregon, Washington in the upcoming years?
2: You know what it is, Nick? To me, it's a necessity uh, across the board. It's, It is you are you are constantly growing and evolving. Or if you're just staying pat and happy with what the status quo is, you end up in a in a much worse position. And I think and it's not speaking ill of any other conferences or anything, but it's just you constantly have to be looking at it uh, from a standpoint of what is going to best suit us in the future. And look, there are problems with it. There's no doubt. Uh, especially on the Olympic sport level, how are you going to figure out travel for a team that's coming East uh, that has to spend uh, five days on the East Coast? You know, can you combine trips, that kind of things for, you know, uh, gymnastics and all, all kinds of uh, of the Olympic sports? Th- those are where a lot of the challenges are are truly going to be. But at the same time, you have to put yourself in a position of strength and as we know college athletics is a business in addition to uh you know character building in a lot of different ways uh for student athletes i uh, while i don't think it's the most ideal situation to be traveling all over the place i also understand it completely and uh, i i do think like getting these news experience new experiences is going to be cool you know we get Uh, the schedule uh, this past week of when you're going out to USC next year, when Washington and when UCLA are coming East. And I also think um, getting a chance to kind of mix up the schedule uh, a bit and getting away from divisions in the big 10, when it comes to Rutgers in particular um, is not the worst thing in the world either. Um, it, It is a tough, tough mountain to climb every year. When you know you've got the Blue Bloods on your schedule every year and you're trying to make real progress and get up there. You don't want the easier schedule or the easier path, but you do want it to be a little bit more of a level playing field. Um, And I think this is going to help solve that problem.
1: Let's shift gears a little bit and get on a much more interesting topic, your career. (laughs) <laughs> and I'm not, and I'm not I'm not trying to be funny because I, I I find your career to be fascinating. I've told you this. You now now you've done a lot of different things in your in your career. I think it's safe to say you're you're probably best known for your work in sports talk radio. Um, today there are thousands of talk radio shows across the country, but that wasn't always the case. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, I think a lot of a lot of these sports talk radio shows today uh, owe oh, their existence to some extent to one particular show that you worked for at WFAN Radio in New York, the Mike and the Mad Dog Show. Mm-hmm. ESPN did a great 30 for 30 special on that uh, and the relationship between Mike Francesa and Chris Mad Dog Russo. It was the standard for sports talk radio for 20 years in the 90s and the 2000s. I can only imagine what that experience was like. Tell us tell us about that. Uh, what did you learn? Uh, and please share some stories with us.
2: Sure. Uh, Everything. Let's start there. I learned everything. Um, I was a, a kid that went to uh, a small liberal arts college uh, in central New York in Hobart College. And I had never even really considered broadcasting, but I was always a huge, huge sports fan. And I listened to Mike and Chris. They had been around for maybe only a, a, a year or two at that point. Uh, but I listened to them all the time when I was driving home. I was delivering Uh, for a drugstore when I was, you know, uh, in college, home during breaks and such. And I was driving around listening to them all day. And, you know, after graduating and and getting an internship at WFAN uh, in 1995, you know, 18 months later, I was working on the show as an assistant producer, which was just surreal enough to begin with for me. But then six months in, the producer of the show, a guy named Bob Gelb, who had been uh the guy for the eight years that the show had been on the air, uh basically told me he was leaving and he thought I should take over. And I'm 24 at this point. Um, really had no business in the job. But I mean, you talk about stepping into the fire of it, there there was an expectation and a standard that was set at that point for those guys. You know, though they were the top of the heap relatively quickly, and they were not giving that up uh, in any way. So you had to be on top of your game each and every day. Um, I'll never forget in uh, 1997, I had had the job probably, I don't know, a month or so. And it was the World Series. And it was uh, the Indians at the time and the Marlins. And the manager at Cleveland was Mike Hargrove. Uh, Jim Leland was managing Florida, and our competitors had Jim Leland out of my boss at the station came to me and said, I expect Mike Hargrove to be on the show today. And I'm, okay, how, how am I going to do that? And quite literally, Nick, I spent two and a half hours calling every luxury hotel I could find. In South Florida, and asking if Mike Hargrove was staying there, and asking for Mike Hargrove's room, please. And no joke, just kept going, just kept going, and finally, he was at I don't know some high regency or something like that, and he picked up the phone. Yeah, oh, uh, Mike, uh, uh, Chris Carlin, WFAN in New York, and uh you know, wondering if we can get you for two or three minutes with Mike Francesa, Chris Russo, and he said. You know, I can't do it right now, but if you you call me tomorrow uh, at this time, I'll be able to do it. And I hung up, and I'm like, okay, okay, he'll do it tomorrow. And then I'm thinking, "Uh, you know what, he may just blow me off. And then uh, I called the next day, and he was there, and he went on the air. And that was my first moment of, oh, my God, I can do this. And they were both so happy that we were able to kind of get over that hump. And, you know, just traveling with them over the years was always an experience Um, getting to go to Super Bowls. And, uh, you know, I've been to 11 Super Bowls now, which is just absurd. And I never would have been to that many had it not been uh, for them. I've been to, uh, you know, college football, playoff games. I've been to uh, world series and Stanley cup finals and NBA finals. Um, I think the one story that just kind of will always stick out for me, Uh, was the conference finals in in 2000. The Knicks were playing the Pacers and we went out to Indiana to do the show uh, for games one and two. And we had gotten there early um, and our hotel rooms were not ready at at the downtown Marriott or whatever it was. And so I went downstairs. Uh, Chris's room was ready, but Mike's was not. So they were both just hanging out in Chris's room. I went downstairs, checked in with the folks to find out when it was ready. They said it would be ready in an hour. Okay. I go back upstairs, and they are sitting on a couch in this room, and the two of them are just very intently watching this movie called The Horse Whisperer, which is Robert Redford and Kristen Scott Thomas, I believe. And it was a very dramatic scene. I I didn't know this movie well. It was a very dramatic scene. And I guess it's a scene, I still haven't seen the whole thing, where Redford is breaking up with Kristin Scott Thomas. And at the scene ends, and Dog, as God is my witness, turns to Mike and says, Mike, listen, he had to break up with that woman. She has absolutely lost, she had no idea what's going on in her life. And and Mike turns back to him and goes, Absolutely. Right move. As if they were talking about Nick's Pacers that night. So th- this is what they were, Nick. Like they just broke everything down in every single situation. And, you know, i droned on there for a bit, but like that was the essence of what that show was. Everybody who thought things were an act, they were never in act. This is this is who these guys were. And
1: that's that's usually the best outcome, right? When people yeah. are are authentic to who they are. And it just comes out in a, in a big way. I got to ask you about somebody else during that, during your time at FAN, you also did the sports update during the morning drive time for the legendary Don Imus in the morning show. I I tell you of all the, of all the uh, famous people I know that I've had the opportunity to meet my dad, he's, he's met coach Belichick and Tom Brady. Like I think you're his favorite because you were the guy who did the, the morning sports update on Imus in the morning, which he listened to religiously can only imagine what it was like being around Imus. What can you tell us about that experience?
2: Between Mike and Chris and Imus, I had a lot of hair before that, but uh, (laughs) it kind of, uh, you know, disappeared thereafter. Listen, again, there was a standard. It was, it was a bit stressful and it was a situation that I was kind of thrown into. Um, You know, they, had had an issue with uh, the previous sports anchor and uh, needed to make a change pretty quickly. And I had filled in on the show occasionally, and he liked the fact that I was, you know, in his mind, a little bit funny, Uh, but you had to bring it every single day for him. Um, It was one of those situations where you're getting up at, you know, three o'clock in the morning and going to work and just having to, be locked in every morning. All right, how can I make this a little bit funnier? Can I find a a little bit of a, you know, a funnier sound bite? It, it was, I, I'm not a comedy writer by any stretch, but this is part of what the show is. And when you're in it, you do it. Uh, incredible, incredible experience. Um, you know, at the end, uh, I, uh, you know, with what happened when he made the comment that he did about the Rutgers women's basketball team, I was kind of in a Precarious spot there. I actually had not been there that day because I had been out with just the worst flu of my entire life, uh, and you know, as that story started to kind of spiral out, I was I was out for the rest of that week. Um, but uh, you know, I'll never forget Bob Mulcahy at the time was the athletic director at Rutgers, and I had that relationship with Rutgers at the time, and you know, they knew I worked on the show. But Bob called me, I I was genuinely worried about him. Bob called me and said, you have nothing to worry about. We know this was not you, this, you're part of our, you know, our family too. So don't worry about it. And, you know, go to work without fear of any kind of problems because this is what it is. So um, I'll always be grateful at that. Uh, I'll be grateful for the opportunities that were afforded to me because of that show, certainly, but it, it was not without its bumpy times, for sure. There were there were easily three or four times along the way where I thought, "No, well, I'm done. He's going to get rid of me here because I'm just not bringing it enough."
1: Well, you know, to that point, we all know New York, New Jersey sports media is is unlike any other. It's 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 strong. It's opinionated. It's in your face. Yet you, throughout your career, have you know, a more humorous approach than I think a lot of others. Uh, that's your unique style and it's worked great for you. How did how did you get that? And what has influenced your on-air style? Are there any role models that you've had? You might've, you mentioned a couple already, but any role models that have shaped your presence in the booth?
2: You know, I think for when it comes to hosting a talk show, I was the youngest of six. Nick's my, Nick, my parents had uh, five kids in six and a half years, seven years. Irish Catholic family, and then me eight years later. So I was not necessarily in the plans, but at the same time, just being around older people who like to laugh a lot, I think, kind of really influenced me in that way. And then somewhere along the way, I, I really where it happened for me was those first five, six times that I I got chances to host on WFAN. Because I was producing for Mike and Chris, you know, that was afforded to me uh, because I'd worked hard on that. My boss at the time just really hated me on the air. You know, I was too focused. The first time I ever hosted was Selection Sunday in 2001. And they were entirely uh, so annoyed with me because I was too locked in on, I got to know everything. I was so worried about getting caught with my pants down in a situation where I didn't know something. And so I hosted four or five times more. And it was just I was very stiff. And then finally, one Sunday, I'll never forget, it was in that summer. And I just went in and I just said, you know what, this is not really working anyway. So just don't have fun with the callers, just screw around, just whatever. And that's what I did. And the next day, my boss said, that's it. That's what I'm looking for. So I know it'll sound like I'm just being funny or whatever i my mantra in my career has always been if you let me be an idiot we're going to be fine so just i'm not going to put you in any trouble you're saying you're good at that yeah so i excel at that like <laughs> i used when i worked in tv and sny uh i used to have a little saying right in front of my a computer that just said nothing is too stupid to try to have fun with just because that's who I am. i'm I'm not somebody that has ever taken himself entirely too seriously. Um, I, I'll happily make fun of myself. and I think that uh, certainly helps um me connect with an audience. you know, uh, more than any, I'm never gonna be the guy that is gonna scream and yell and and tell you why, um, you know, tell you why you're an idiot or anything like that. But I will get passionate about topics, and I will have opinions that will annoy you. Hopefully, just within the same 20 minutes, I will make you chuckle. And that's what I'm hoping keeps you around.
1: Well, Chris, thanks for joining us. Thanks for sharing those stories. Uh, Really appreciate our friendship over the years. Really uh, enjoy listening to you on air. Uh, You can catch Chris on ESPN Radio every day from 12 to 3 on the Midday Show. Uh, Chris. Thanks for all you do for for college football, for all the listeners, for Rutgers football. And uh, hopefully we'll see each other at the Rutgers bowl game this year.
2: I'm looking forward to it, Nick. There's no better sport than college football.
1: Thanks, Chris. Take care.
2: Tax Act knows watching college football is fun.
1: Doing your taxes? Not so much. That's why they make filing simple. So let's get them over with. Tax Act, the official tax filing software of bowl season. Go to taxact.com to get started today. Our next guest played 14 seasons in the NFL after spending four years as a USC Trojan. He now spends his fall Saturdays with NBC as a Big Ten football analyst. Please welcome to the show, Matt Castle. Matt, thanks for joining us.
3: Oh, happy to be here. No, nothing I'd like to do more. I'm here in South Bend right now, man, getting ready for this USC-Notre Dame rivalry. It's going to be awesome. 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 You know a little bit about that rivalry. Well, I
1: want to go, uh, we'll get to that, but let's go back uh, when you were younger, growing up as a three-sport athlete, football, baseball, and basketball, and even reaching a Little League World Series finals, which is pretty cool for a lot of people. That that might be the biggest uh, sports achievement they ever have. What made you
3: ultimately choose football? It was really interesting because I was starting to gravitate more toward baseball just because of the early successes that I had. We went to the Little League World Series when we were 12. Like you said, we lost the championship to Venezuela. Then that next year, our same team went to the 13-year-old World Series, which it definitely doesn't get the same publicity, right? And so I was kind of tracking toward just playing baseball because I've had a lot of successes. And I played Pop Warner football, but it was really – I was going out to like a baseball practice and the football team had already started. They were actually one week away from season, my freshman year. I'm walking out and I see him out there and I'm just, I start to get that itch, right? I, try, I start to, something was calling me to go out there. So I went and talked to the coach. I said, coach, is there any way? I didn't even tell my parents. I said, is there any way I could just come on join now? They had already summer workouts, seven on sevens. I completely skipped all of that because I didn't, I thought I was going to play baseball. And he's like, well, you have to wait two or three, three weeks. And then you can come on in because of like just for the health standpoint, they got to make sure you're in condition. I was like, perfect. So I ended up playing my freshman year. I started my first game as a linebacker, linebacker, quarterback, and then went on and played baseball and football. But that's really football started for me in high school kind of off a whim. I just was like, you know what, I'm going to go give myself an opportunity. And then from there, it kind of took off. When we had your colleague
1: from Big Ten Saturday Night on our podcast earlier this year, Joshua Perry, he talked about how, great, great dude, um, told some great stories. But he talked about how growing up in Ohio, for him, being a Buckeye was his dream. You being from the L.A. area, what was your recruitment process like, and did you always want to be a USC Trojan?
3: That's a great question. You know, going back to my family dynamics, my mother grew up in Ohio. My grandfather, my two uncles, went to Notre Dame. My father was from Texas. They met in Chicago, married in New York, went out to California and there you go and so we were already confused about our, our, with our upbringing from we had you know Cincinnati Bengals, we had Dallas Cowboys, we had Notre Dame, we had Texas Longhorns. We had all this stuff going on but when I grew up in Southern California obviously being there with UCLA, USC, I went to a public school and uh, LA Unified and we didn't have the same probably resources at some of these big private schools that you hear about the modern days the St. John Bosco's and all that. So, but by my junior year, I had a good sophomore year by my junior year. And then all of a sudden there started to be some interest and coaches started to come from all over and, you know, you get the letters early on, but then when you start to have coaches physically come to your, your school and start to talk to you and your coach, that's when the, the interest really starts to spark. But USC was always in the mix, UCLA, Tennessee, Miami. I, Talked a little bit to Notre Dame, but Notre Dame was put, run the triple option. There was no way that I was going to go there, but those were really my main schools at the time when I was coming out that I was thinking about going to. And at the end of the day, I chose USC because I thought that Carson was going to leave early, and he didn't. He ended up staying his whole, his whole five years of school, I was like, come on, Cars, leave something for uh, other people. But, you know, that's how it all kind of transpired when uh, I ended up picking USC. I just thought it was the right fit for me. It gave me time to grow and develop as a quarterback behind Carson Palmer, who was I felt was one of the best in the nation and obviously was. And um, and then I had tried to wait my turn and, you know, the competition we went through with Matt Linehart my redshirt junior year. And we went all the way until a week before season when Coach Carroll called me and said, hey, Matty. You know, you've, you've competed your butt off. You've done really well. And, but we're going to start the other guy, but if he messes up, guess what? You're, 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 going in. We're playing Auburn to start the year. They're number one. They've got the war Eagle, all that stuff. And I'm sitting there going, man, this is awesome. And he goes out there and lights it up the first day. And I was like, Oh, well, there goes that idea. Well, it's funny you bring
1: that up. That leads into my next question. Your, your experience was so unique at USC, especially looking back at it now you know, after the fact that you played in the NFL for 14 years, you never started a game at quarterback in college and backed up two Heisman trophy winners in Carson Palmer and Matt Leinart, as you mentioned, tell us more about that. How did being in a quarterback room with those two guys, you know, as tough as it might've been to, to not be playing, maybe it helped you down the road a little bit.
3: Well, you know, the one thing that I'll say about coach Carroll and his program is it was all about competition every single day was about competing against each other, competing against the best. We had depth on that team. We obviously – he brought us into that national stage, so to speak. His first year we struggled a little bit, but it was the second, third year. But being next – to, I was actually roommates with Carson Palmer. And then Lineart comes in. We had a recruiting class. We also had a guy, Brandon Hance, who came in who was a heck of a player. He started his freshman year at Purdue. So there was constant competition. And so you had to bring it every single day. And I think that's one thing that I leaned on but it it was there there's some frustrating days there's no doubt about it where you get discouraged you go you know is this the right school for me but i always felt like education was just as important as the the football side but my my path was a little bit different. My sophomore year, I played some H-back and caught some passes from Carson Palmer. I played on special teams. And then you go to that redshirt junior year where I competed with Matt. We get through halfway through the year. We got banged up at tight end. Coach Carroll asked me to play some tight end. So I'm playing some tight end. I'm on kickoff. I'm on kickoff return and quarterback pads. It, it was a bad combination, let's be honest. They're like That's the scariest thing. I've got so much more respect for those guys. But I just wanted to compete. And then after my junior year, I was kind of, I was frustrated with football and the way that it had gone so far. So I went out and played baseball at USC my junior year. And uh, for Coach Gillespie, God bless his soul. He's a great coach. But I went over and said, Coach, if I can help you, I'd love to. So I pitched that year and then came back and I told Coach Carroll, look, I want to end my career how I came in as a quarterback. I don't, uh, you know, it's not about anything other than I want to end it how, how I came in and he allowed me to do that. So of course the depth chart comes out the first day I'm fifth on the depth chart. Right. So I've got to work myself back up to the number two. And fortunately for me, we got, we blew out a lot of teams. I got some mop up duty and all that. And then, uh, and then I don't know what the decision was to really go and go out for a pro day. I knew that we had a ton of talent that was coming out. There was going to be a lot of scouts. And I said, you know, I'm going to go give it a shot. So I went into Carl Smith, our quarterback coach and I said, Hey Carl, I think I'm going to go, uh, go out for pro day. To- he goes, castle. I think you need to look for another profession, brother. And I said, thanks for the boost of encouragement there. That's, uh, that's really nice of you. And I just, I said, screw it. I went out and did it and I uh, threw the ball really well that, that day. And it sparked a bunch of interest. As soon as I got done, all these scouts came in and they're like, tell me your story. What's, what's the deal. I was like, well, there's a pretty good guy named Carson Palmer that was drafted number one overall by Cincinnati. The other guy just won the Heisman Trophy. I was sitting there and I, you know, we battled it out in the week before season. So then I, I it, from there, it went into all the private workouts with five different teams. And somehow, some way, New England was there on uh seventh round. And I, I thought it was a joke. My, I'm sitting there at my agent's office. He said, come down late because free agency seventh round, it's going to happen quick. And somebody comes taps me and says, hey, somebody's on the phone for you. And I walk in the other room he said, hello, and he said, hey, uh, Matt, it's Coach Belichick. I just want to say congratulations. We're going to take you next in the NFL draft. I said, are you messing with me? Come on. And he goes, no, no, uh, we're taking you next in the NFL draft. Welcome to the New England Patriots. And sure enough, ding, ding, ding across. Even the commentators, they didn't know what the hell to say about me because I threw 32 passes in all college. That's it.
1: As you're telling me that story, you know we, we both know Coach Belichick. You played for him. I worked for him. You know I'm wondering if, you know, the fact that you were willing to be versatile, you know, at points in your career and play those other positions, even if you didn't want to want to so much, you just wanted to be on the football field, that probably played into his evaluation and his thought process about you along the way. I'm, I'm sure.
3: You'd have to th- you'd have to think so because they lo- always looked for a certain type of person. I give a lot of credit to Scott Pioli and what he was able to do while he was there because they were looking for team-oriented guys, and that's exactly what I was. Right, I, I could have probably gone and transferred, but the transfer portal was different back then. You'd have to sit out a year, and at that point in my career, I was already a junior. Thinking that was going to be junior senior year, that would have put me behind. So well, tell me more um, about that. that. That's actually my next question. Times are so different now,
1: right. With the transfer portal right. basically being like unrestricted free agency, a guy like you today would have almost certainly transferred to another school that I don't know, maybe didn't have two Heisman trophy winners on the roster. So you could, right. play. Do Yeah. Do you ever think about that and contemplate what you would have
3: and could have done? I do. Cause I think that I would have been one of those candidates that if I, I really wanted to go compete and show what I, what I could do, that I would have probably been able to go to another school, get myself into the portal, and be able to play right away. And so the dynamics have completely changed. The landscape of college football is open free agency every single year, and you see it with all these different teams and all these different quarterbacks that are playing, whether it's Pennix, whether it's the guy up in Oregon State. I mean, if you've got so many different quarterbacks that have made that decision – to go give themselves an opportunity to play to prove themselves on the field so that they can produce that film for the NFL guys and um, yeah but back then it didn't exist so I kind of I was one of those people that kind of got stuck in that situation well you were fortunate enough to
1: uh, go to four bowl games in your career Uh, Las Vegas Bowl in 2001 followed by the Orange Bowl two Rose Bowls including the BCS title in 2005 you know people who watch bowl games they turn on the TV and and they watch a game, you know, like they do any other game, but you don't realize everything that goes into it. The fact that you're, you're there five or six days in, in the memories that you create with your friends, being in a unique place, uh, at that point in your life. Tell us about that.
3: Bowl games are special because, like you said, there's so much buildup to these bowl games too because you have a lot of time from when the season ends. It's almost like an extended spring ball, right, where you get a lot of time to practice. You get more reps, time on tasks. The depth of your team gets to really practice more, a little bit more. So then the starters did. But then leading up to that bowl week, everybody gets fired up. And our first bowl game was the Las Vegas Bowl. And we originally found out it's on Christmas Day. I mean, Vegas, Christmas Day, you're kind of like, ah. But the bowl was phenomenal. The gifts were great. We got like a full – I think it was a PlayStation or Xbox console. They they took us out. They had all these different shows that we went to. We had some deal where Utah was there. We almost actually, our team almost got in a fight after that. That was actually pretty funny. I was sitting there going, I'm gonna just watch this one. This is uh this is pretty intense. But then they had like a who do they have an Elvis impersonator come up and we had to do this thing where they wanted us to sing a Christmas song and, and an Elvis voice. And I was like, no, I'm doing blue suede shoes. Like I just did blue suede shoes. But I mean, you have so many of these things. And plus it's the bonding experience that you get with your guys. Cause you're there just with your team. You're in every meeting together. You're going to all these fun activities. And then as the week goes on, it's really focusing in and trying to eliminate the distractions moving into the game so you can go play your best ball and then the next year was um where we went to the orange bowl which was phenomenal the accommodations were down in hollywood florida right on the beach we went to the hard rock cafe and you got early on the week you get these more activities where you get to go be with your boys and go experience the town and people are in town for the game alumni is in town it's just a blast your family's there so it's the experience of that and then to win that game come back to the hotel they have like this huge party, right? And Coach Carroll, everybody's getting loose. There's dancing. It's again, it's an experience, not just for your team, but all the families that are there that have been through the journey with you. My grandfather was there my grandmother. um, So it's pretty remarkable. Then you go to the Rose bowl the next year, which is obviously the iconic for us in the pac 10 back then against the big 10, we played Michigan in the Rose bowl, ended up winning that game, but you've got the beef bowl leading up to that. After that, we got to go to Disneyland. Like there's so many cool experiences that come along with that. And then once again, we went back to the orange bowl, beat Oklahoma in the orange bowl the next year. And they do such a remarkable job the all the committees that put put these bowl events together and the different um the different activities that we get to do as a team it just it's a special time and i think everybody on that team really remembers those and those are memories that we all cherish with the college football playoff expanding from 4 teams to 12 next year and be there, being further
1: integrated into the bowl system what impact do you think that expanded playoff will have on the college
3: football landscape I'm so excited about it because you can have a one, two loss team, right, that is playing their best football at the end of the year. Because you look at the Pac-12 right now with the stacked group that they have and you say, well, they're going to cannibalize each other at some point because you've got Oregon, Washington playing each other this week. Somebody's going to have a one loss after that. You've got USC hasn't even hit the meat of their schedule. They still have to play Washington, Oregon. Uh, But these are teams that are still considered some of the best in the nation. But you just have to get into that 12. And I think the matchups will be fascinating when you get into this 12. So I'm a big proponent of it. I think it's going to do great things for college sports. And a lot of these teams that have been on the outside looking in that probably could compete in a college football playoff, but now they'll have that opportunity to.
1: Yeah, no doubt. I think we're all all looking forward to that. We you mentioned uh, you mentioned that you played baseball for a season at USC. We've we've seen a, a number of NFL players get uh, uh, get drafted in Major League Baseball as well. Patrick Mahomes, Kyler Murray, Russell Wilson, current guys. You were also one of those those guys. You were drafted by the A's in the, the two thousand four draft. Um, what was that like? Did that come out of nowhere as well? And did, did was there a moment you said, "Hey, maybe I maybe I should give this a try."
3: It came out of nowhere, for sure, because they definitely were drafting off a of potential, not off my stats, because I remember going down to Tulane that year and just getting raked all over the field. I think I gave up five runs in one inning. I was like, oh, man, that's not good. But, you know, both my my older brother and my younger brother both played minor league baseball. My older brother had some up and down trips like call ups in the major leagues, had about five or six starts in the majors where my younger brother, he was drafted in the seventh round by the White Sox and unfortunately blew out his shoulder I think it was his second year or something. So we came kind of from a baseball background. So I always had a love for baseball. Um, I thought about it, but then when they, I think they probably offered like a thousand bucks and a bus ticket out to wherever I was going to go. I was like, I'm going to go back and play one more year of football and figure that out. And then if it came down to it, I always had another year of eligibility for baseball as well. Now that you're working on Big Ten
1: Saturday night and with your alma mater, USC, joining the Big Ten next season, it's going to take me a while to get used to that one. I know. What's your perspective on conference realignment and the fact that the Pac-12, as we know it, will no longer exist?
3: Yeah, it's sad, especially with the way that the Pac-12 has been playing this year and the competition levels as good as anybody in the country. Um, But at the same time, it was kind of inevitable just based on, as you well know, everybody's trying to get their bag of money. And this was an opportunity for this, not only their football program, but for their entire sports program for the longevity to be able to cash in and i think it's going to be an exciting time now it's going to take some time to get uh, adjusted to it because a lot of times when you look at these schools in the pac 12 or big 10 it's regional rivalries where now you're expanding it from usc ucla washington oregon all coming into the big 10 but i think it'll make up favorable matchups they're going to dissolve the different divisions of the east and west it's going to be one full conference so the game slates will be a little bit different um, but at, at the same time, you're going to get big brand football, right? You're going to get USC, Ohio State. You're going to get Oregon, Michigan. You're going to get some of the Washington, whoever. I mean, it's going to be uh, a lot of fun to watch, and it's going to be the new norm. So it, it'll it'll be, I think, a lot of fun to see how it goes this first year in particular, because I think everybody's anticipating it. Well, Matt,
1: thanks so much for joining us. Uh, good luck this weekend. I know you're going to have a lot of fun calling this game in particular, and really happy for you that you've you've uh, seen like you're having a lot of fun you know, doing what you're doing. I'm really happy for you that you you found a great uh, great occupation after your playing career is over. And uh, good luck to you. And thanks
3: for your time. I appreciate you absolutely. It'll be a lot of fun this week. And have a good one. All right, take care.
2: Vapor Apparel has all your game day essentials, from eco friendly lightweight sun protection shirts and hoodies to cozy joggers and Sherpa fleece pullovers. Vapor has the layers you need to get outside and stay out longer. Plus, as Bowl Season's official apparel sponsor, they're creating limited edition shirts for bowl-bound teams made with 100% reprieve fiber from recycled water bottles. Want to celebrate your team's bowl bid with official bowl-bound gear? Get yours and explore more at bowlseason.com.
1: We now welcome to the show Jackson Burnett, president of Vapor Apparel, and Jay Hurtwig, senior vice president of commercialization for Unify, makers of Reprieve. Jackson and Jay, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Jay, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you went to Georgia. They've clearly been the most dominant college football program over the course of the past several years, winning back-to-back national championships. What are your expectations the rest of this season? I mean, I, I could probably guess what they are, but can they do it again?
0: Or is it just too hard to win three in a row? Well, you know, you know, Nick, that's the big question. Uh, you, it is, uh, It is the SEC, and it is the gauntlet that they're currently going through. So they've got a lot of challenges in front of them. You know, they got Ole Miss this week, they go to Tennessee the next week, they've got the state championship with Tech the next week and then possibly Bama uh in the SEC championship. So a long way to go for the dogs, but uh, I can tell you as a member of the dog nation, uh we we're feeling good about our uh, about the opportunity, but remember this hasn't been done. A 3P hadn't been done since the 1930s, I believe. And uh but uh, you know we're excited about it, and uh, we just got to get through this week with Ole Miss, and we, we'll talk about Tennessee the next week. Very predictable answer, Jay. You sound like you sound like a head coach. Well, you um, know Kirby, we listen to what Kirby said. In Kirby, yeah. we trust.
1: <laughs> now, Jackson, your alma mater had a similar run to Georgia, but it's slowed down the past few years. Clemson appeared to be in real trouble a week ago, sitting at four and four, getting ready to host Notre Dame. I was looking ahead to this podcast. I'm like, okay, how are we gonna talk about Georgia in a nice way, but they go ahead and upset the Irish. And for the moment anyways, Clemson fans are excited again. I know you were at the game. Tell us about the atmosphere in Death Valley last weekend.
4: Uh, it was great. Um, I've got a, my oldest daughters up there. So um, uh, the stands are full. A lot, a lot of Notre Dame fans uh, thought they were coming uh, to, to get revenge on our win from uh, 2015 um but but the uh the uh stands were electric uh it was good to see you know Clemson's had a tough tough go of it early this year we got a young quarterback we've got um had some injuries but uh things came together we've got a really really stout defense and i think Dabo got challenged a little bit by some hecklers on the radio leading up to the game and uh and his team came out and responded so um Really, really nice to see us get back on the on the winning track, and we'll, we'll see how the year finishes out.
1: Well, no nobody was crying for you guys, but I uh, certainly made a statement last week. Uh, Clemson is not going away anytime soon. Now, this year we're continuing our exciting tradition here at bowl season of providing bowl-bound shirts to the teams in the locker room after they get their sixth win and become bowl eligible. Jay, you have one right over your shoulder there from last year for Georgia. Uh, with yes, the sir. help of uh, this just tremendous – partnership with both Unify and Vapor. Uh, this year's shirts are once again made from Reprieve, which is a fabric made from recycled water bottles. Jay, Unify makes Reprieve. Tell us about that process of making a fabric out of recycled water bottles.
0: Well, yeah, Nick, it's a, it's a pretty simple process and it all starts with us. It starts with me, you, Jackson. And, you know, we just have to take the eff- the time and the effort to take our our plastic bottles and put them in a recycling container and when you do that you have an opportunity that bottle has an opportunity to become something else whether that's a bowl-bound t-shirt the interior of your car upholstery upholstered fabrics in your home uh there's just a variety of different end uses that, that that bottle can go back into and in this case uh You put your bottles in a recycling container. Uh, Those bottles uh, are baled, sorted and baled. From there, we will take those bottles. We'll chop them up. We'll remove the labels and the caps. We'll wash the the material. It'll produce what we we call clean, clear flake. And from there, we will convert that flake into polymer chip. So we're going to melt it. We're going to put it through a filter. We're going to create chip. From there, we will melt that chip filter it again, and extrude that into yarn and fiber. That yarn and fiber goes to Vapor Apparel's fabric producer. They make the fabric in the t-shirt, and then uh, all of the teams get to enjoy that wonderful product in the locker room.
1: Excellent. Jackson, so Vapor then takes that material and makes the shirts from it. You also have a full line of apparel, primarily geared towards the outdoors. Tell us about Vapor's primary mission and goals as a company.
4: Um, yes, we are a uh, stun and active wear brand headquartered in Charleston, South Carolina. Chose to do this podcast outside because it's a beautiful, uh, beautiful day. And in the ethos of our brand, uh, we sell um, our products into the uh, modern outdoor and, and coastal, uh, coastal markets. Uh, basically, we make high performance, uh, technical, comfortable, customizable apparel. Uh, we uh, have a brand that we sell d to c in retail and also do customization for uh, businesses and Bowl Bound uh, and, and the colleges and uh, for the Bowl Bound program.
1: Sticking with you, Jackson, we currently have 51 teams with six or more wins who are Bowl Bound. There'll be a lot more coming in uh, in the upcoming weeks. Clemson has one to go now. Um, they're, they're Thanks five for reminding four. me. <laughs> hey, it looks a lot better this week than it did last week. Uh, in yeah. terms of getting there, tell tell us how gratifying is it for you to see these student athletes wearing your shirts, celebrating a really meaningful achievement.
4: Well, it, it is really neat uh, to to watch this this process. I think prior to the the bowl bound program, uh, the the um, there really wasn't much celebration around uh, getting bowl eligible, and and this really gives a lot of teams, the kids, just an opportunity to celebrate that. Uh, that accomplishment and and the season, a season's full of of, of victories and, and major victories and minor victories and and getting bowl eligible is a is a big deal and and this is a good way for these kids to uh, to celebrate doing that and you've got you got teams that are perennial bowl teams every year and uh, it, it gives a coach an opportunity to 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 pause uh, and and celebrate uh, and and then focus on the next goal ahead.
1: It certainly does. And another element to our partnership, Jay, is the sustainability working group we put together. You're helping about a half dozen bowl games maximize their sustainability efforts in their venues on game day. Tell us why that is important and what are you trying to accomplish with that working group?
0: Well, at the end of the day, it's really about creating awareness about recycling and what can happen when you choose to recycle. You know, obviously at, the, at these bowl games, you know, you're know, you going to have anywhere from 50 to 100,000 people in some of these venues. So there's going to be a tremendous amount of plastic uh, in the form of uh, plastic bottles that are going to be uh, consumed at this event. And it's very important for these venues to capture that material and make sure it gets recycled. Beyond that, uh, we've all, we're also working with these venues to help them create Some data as far as the environmental impact that comes with that, and so, for example, when you recycle bottles instead of making a new bottle, when you choose to recycle that, put it through the process, you know you can reduce your the energy consumption associated with making a new bottle by up to forty five percent. You can reduce the water usage that that's associated with making a new bottle by up to twenty percent. And then you can also help reduce carbon emissions by almost 30%. So there's a lot of data that can go in uh, that we can provide these facilities uh, when they go through this process and they capture as much material and they send it down the right recycling path.
1: Well, I want to personally thank you both for our partnership. It's really a, a great story of sustainability, as well as celebrating one of the longest running traditions in American sports. We like to say that bowl season is a celebration of college football I think this is really a celebration of a great partnership as well. So thank you both so much for being on the show. I I know you're busy guys and uh, let's uh, let's, I know we're all rooting for an exciting finish to this year's college football season. Sounds good. Great. Thank you, Nick. Take care guys. Well, that'll do it for this week's podcast. If you missed any of our past episodes, you can catch them on Spotify, Apple music, YouTube, or anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. And if you enjoyed today's show, we'd appreciate you to like, subscribe, and drop a five-star rating. And as always, you can follow all the bull season news on our website, bowlseason.com, and on social media at Bowl Season. Thanks for listening.